on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad you can be with us. And for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. If you're a first time listener, all you need to do is call us with a question that you have from God's word, or maybe you're looking for biblical direction on some issue in your life or ministry. Again, the number locally is 843-525. Uh, 1859, 525-1859, 843-South Carolina Exchange. Or if you are listening through the internet, uh, you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. Our toll-free number is 877-WAGP-980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you are more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We're always happy to receive it that way as well. Well, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started. Okay, we've got a question all the way from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And Bill would like to know, in Mark 1, Jesus tells the man healed of leprosy to tell no one. But in Mark 5, he tells the demoniac who is healed to tell people. Why this difference? All right, let me uh, turn there for just a second. Uh, In Mark chapter 1, it says, And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And then it says, And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. A little bit later in Mark's gospel, in um, uh, Mark chapter 7, you find a similar admonition. He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. Uh, And he said that something should be given to him to eat. That was when Jesus raised the child up. But uh, by contrast here in Mark chapter five, uh, you, you reference the demoniac. And so uh, here at the end of the miracle, it says, and, and they began to implore him to leave their region. And as, as he was getting to the boat, the man who had been demon possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Rick, you know, the three keys to uh, effective uh, real estate, right? Location, location, location. All right. You know, what the three keys are to biblical exegesis. Location, location, location. <laughs> exactly, of exactly. So context is everything. And that answers a lot of questions. So you will see repeatedly in the Gospels 
uh, times when Jesus would say, don't tell anybody. But here in Decapolis, Deca is 10, Polis is city. So this is a region of the 10 cities. And where the miracle of the demoniac takes place is uh, actually one of those class A spots in Israel. When you go to Israel, and by the way, we are going in May, God willing, of 2018. The brochure was just completed. Is that online yet, Rick, uh, that brochure? I was just waiting to hear back from the uh, travel agency folks right. to get the go-ahead, and then it will. So it's just a matter of probably before the end of the day, it will be up online at searchthescriptures.org or at communitybiblechurch.us. Uh, so one of the places that we will be visiting, interestingly, is Gersa, uh, and it's the place where the uh, Gerasene demoniac was uh, dealt with. And really, demoniacs, there were two, but, but uh, one account, for instance, emphasizes one, probably because he was the most vocal. And so they're deep into Gentile region. This is an area where there was no real threat to what Jesus and God's perfect timing was going to accomplish. If you remember in the, uh, there's a miracle that is recorded in all four gospels. Uh, it's the miracle of feeding of the 5,000. And it's an interesting miracle. And what's uh, fascinating is John's account, because in John, the sixth chapter, um, you have an explanation of what was happening uh, with this sermon that follows. And right before the sermon we read in John 6, uh, therefore, when the people saw the sign, and, and John uses an interesting word for, for miracle. Uh, if you have the New American Standard, it will note typically in the margin, attesting miracle. There are different words for miracle in the Greek New Testament, dunamis. Uh, we get our word dynamite from it. It speaks of the power of a miracle or tara, uh, transliterated T-E-R-A. Uh, it um, speaks of the awe and the wonder and the amazement that the miracle produces. But then John uses a word, samion, and it's a miracle with a sign, a miracle with a message. And so what is interesting with this particular miracle, like with several of John's miracles, there's a sermon that follows. And John, of course, is unique, though this is one of those rare times when all four gospel writers uh, include something. Uh, this miracle follows with a sermon, but it says, therefore, when the people had saw the sign, the, the miracle with a message, which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. The prophet, of course, uh, is something that Moses wrote about in the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, he spoke of a prophet who had come uh, after him, who in some ways would be like him, except that the people would listen to him. And so they wanted to know if he is the one that Moses wrote about. And so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew himself to the mountain by himself alone. In, in Revelation this past Sunday, we noted that there are three key offices that the Messiah plays. He, he serves as prophet, priest, and king. Jesus was a prophet, more than a prophet. Obviously, he's God in human flesh, but that's one of the roles that he plays. And he is a unique prophet. He's the prophet of prophets. And so, indeed, he was the prophet. And uh, the very text that they're referencing is quoted by the Apostle Peter in Acts 3 in one of his early sermons and so forth. Well, in either case, they wanted to come and make him king. One of the roles of Messiah is that he would be king. And Jesus was not ready uh, for them to make that kind of move. 
Uh, he will not reign and rule as king until his second coming. But they wanted a Messiah who would overthrow Rome, who would supersede all of their enemies. And he comes the first time, uh, not as uh, the line of the tribe of Judah, but as a suffering lamb who will die as our substitute. And so he understood the way the Jews thought, where if you're in a region like Decapolis, here in Mark 5, it's, it, you're deep into Gentile country. Uh, you got Gentiles raising pigs. That's not something Jewish people would do. And uh, it's well known and documented, not only from within the scripture itself, but it is also documented with outside sources of the day that shows that this was a Gentile region. So Jesus loves Gentiles too. He came to his own, his own received him not. Um, they resisted him. But with that said, it didn't mean that he was ignoring the Gentiles. The, the Jewish people in the Old Testament were to be a light to the nations, the goyim, ethnes in, in Greek, the nations, meaning uh, all the different ethnic groups that uh, form this world that we live in. And so recognizing well, one of the reasons he, he's in Gentile region, because uh, he, he loves Gentiles, too. And so he wanted this man, you know, go and tell, uh, don't hide and seek, go and tell. Uh, you go ahead and tell anybody and everyone who will listen. And so context, 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 location, location, location will answer a lot of questions uh, that we might have in the Bible. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Uh, from Boston, Marilyn would like to know, was it right for Rahab to lie to protect the spies? And is this what the James is teaching? No, uh, it's never right to do wrong. It's always wrong to tell a lie. And so God's word is plain on that. God never says to do evil so that good may come. And so sometimes people say, well, the end justifies the means. Well, not, not biblically. And if you read Proverbs and some of you listening to me read a proverb every day, cause there's 31 chapters. Uh, it's one of the key themes that runs through the book. Uh, Rahab's uh, faith is what's being commended in James chapter two. Uh, she was, she had the handle Rahab, the prostitute. She was not a moral woman. And so, you know, all the camel jockeys who came through the desert, who stopped at her place uh, after a while, she started to hear stories about the God of Israel and the incredible miracles that he did to deliver uh, the Jewish people out with a powerful hand. And so when these men come in to spy the city, she recognizes that they represent the one true God. And she believes that. And so her faith was, you know, adequate for salvation. She had a very, very limited knowledge, obviously at this point on sanctification, but she did believe in the God of Israel and what he represented and the things that she heard about him, that he's the God who's going to redeem mankind. And he really demonstrated himself in a great way uh, through the mighty miracles that he did. So when, of course, she did what she did, she was a very young believer. Uh, not to mention, I should say parenthetically, there are seasoned believers in the Bible who lie. Abraham lied. Uh, that doesn't make it right. Um, so God does not condone her lying. Everything that the Bible records, it doesn't necessarily approves. And so uh, she shouldn't have lied. And God could have certainly delivered the spies in a different way. But nonetheless, she's commended in James for her faith. Uh, that she had believed the word of God. And so um, that that's the main point. All right, good question. All right, very good. 843-525-1859, toll free 
7980, or you can always email us at tbl at wagp.net. And uh, our next uh, person who dictated their question uh, says, um, I'm prayerfully wrestling over the qualification of a pastor shepherd. Currently, I serve on active duty for the U.S. Navy. I desire to go into full-time ministry. However, I'm hesitant with entertaining the idea based uh, based off of being previously divorced. I was unsaved when I married my first wife. We were married five years. I divorced as an unsaved man. My current wife and I are both committed Christians. Christ is the center of our family, praise God. As I prayerfully seek, um, uh, well, we always give preference to live callers. We'll get back to that question in just a second, but we do have a live caller now, so let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. How are you all doing? Doing well, thank you. Um. I have a two-part question. The first part is, how did Satan rebel in heaven if there's no sin? And the second part, do do angels have a free will? That's a great question. How old are you? I'm 12. You're 12. Well, thank you for calling with that question. Uh, Interestingly, angels like humans are what we call persons. Now, we're human persons, and we are distinctly different from the angels. The Psalm says, Psalm 8, that right now we're a little bit lower than the angels, but there's coming a time when we will be above the angels. And so, in fact, the scripture says we will actually be involved in the judgment, the evaluation of angels, good angels. So there's two kinds or two classifications of angels in the broadest sense. There's what we call holy angels or elect angels. And there's a lot of different terms that are used to describe angels in the Bible. And by the way, I have a course at searchthescriptures.org if you are really motivated to study it, and it's called Angelology. And so Angelology is the study of angels, and we really break it into two halves, uh, holy angels and fallen angels. With that said, um, (laughs) fallen angels uh, fall into actually several categories, but they are persons in that they have the makeup of a person in that they have mind, uh, emotion, and will. And so in my course of angelology, I walk through a number of scriptures to show that angels think they have intellect, they have emotion, and they have will. Uh, We, uh, like angels, also have mind, emotion, and will. That's part of being a person, God himself. For instance, we're teaching a course right now in pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit on Wednesday evenings. In the first section of the course, we dealt with the Uh, fact that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a cloud. He's not a bird. He's not a thing. He's not an it. He is a person. And as a person, he displays intellect, emotion, and will. He knows the deep things of God. He uh, is grieved when we sin. He uh, wills different spiritual gifts on each individual when you are born again. So it is with angels. They display the attributes of personhood. So angels aren't machines any more than we are. Part of being made as humans in the image and likeness of God is to have a free will. And so you see that free will demonstrated when God makes Adam. And he says in Genesis 2, 16, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from the day that you eat from it, you shall certainly die. If God created Adam so that all he could do was obey, then he would not be a person. He'd be a machine. He'd be a robot. 
So God made him with the capacity of free will. And there was a testing period. Now, had they eaten from the tree of life, and we will see the tree of life when we come to the end of the book of Revelation. You find it in the opening chapters of the Bible. You find it in the closing chapters. And God's people in heaven will eat from the tree of life. Had Adam eaten from the tree of life and chosen to do that, then he would be forever confirmed in perfection. And God teaches the solidarity of the race. So we were in Adam. And that's why when Adam sinned, Paul can say in Romans 5, 12, we all sinned. And that's why we're born with this in nature. We can't just look back and say, well, that was Adam's fault. No, it was my fault too, because I chose with Adam. Take it by faith if you can't understand it. But uh, nonetheless, uh, angels too have free will. And so there are two critical passages in the Bible. And we will actually study these later on in the Revelation. Because when you come to Revelation chapter 12, and if you're listening to me um, and you're new to WAGP 88.7 FM at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, and we have uh, branches in Hilton Head, in uh, Bluffton, right there on the border at the Bridge Center, and now in Graniteville as well. Uh, but one of the things that we're going, we're doing right now is a verse by verse exposition of the book of Revelation. We're, we just started, we've had three messages, we're still in the first chapter. But when we come to Revelation chapter 12, we will hear about Satan once again in some of his work. And it says in his tall, uh, in his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So Satan was created with a free will. And there are two central passages that describe his rebellion against God. They're easy to remember. 14 times two is 28. So you have Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And in those two texts, you have a description of the rebellion of Satan. And you see his free will. In fact, in Isaiah 14, five times over, he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And he willfully chooses to rebel against God. And he doesn't do it alone. One third of all the angels who during the tribulation period are thrown down to the earth. Right now they wage war, a certain class of fallen angels. There are some fallen angels who cannot wage war against the believer. And so the Bible speaks, for instance, of a class of angels that did such a vile, wicked thing during the days of Noah that they are in eternal chains, a place called Tardis. It's a certain section of hell. But most angels can taunt and wage war against God's people. And so we wage war, Paul says, not against flesh and blood. That is our real enemy is, is not people, but principalities and powers. And you see that illustrated. Uh, angels are very organized on both sides, holy angels and fallen angels. And so Satan has his uh, dominions and uh, his angels who even cover different countries. And so there are angels that are assigned to nations and so forth. And so they are very, very free. So yes, angels rebelled against God. There was no sin in heaven, but they rebelled against God and uh, Satan and a third of uh, the holy angels fell and they will never be redeemed. They are forever confirmed in wretchedness. Uh, people say, why? That seems unfair. God redeemed humans. Well, he did. But uh, when Adam sinned, he sinned in a world that already had evil in it. Uh, Satan had already fallen 
he is tempted or Eve is and Adam really sins with his eyes open. But still, there's already a spiritual war that is waging uh, when man is created. But God's perfect. He's just. Will not the God of the earth do justice? And the answer to that rhetorical question is absolutely he will. And with that said, God in his perfect wisdom will not redeem angels. Right now, there are holy angels that are serving God's people. They have been sent out. Hebrews 1.14 tells us to render service to those who will inherit salvation. That's us. Uh, our, our salvation is not completed. We're looking to inherit the final portion. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin someday from the very presence of sin when we inherit our final resurrection body. Right now, they are serving God's people. And sometimes they appear in human form and you don't even know that the person you're speaking to is an angel. Uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that, that, you know, show hospitality to strangers, uh, not knowing that sometimes you're actually entertaining an angel. You're just not aware of it. And so we're to be sensitive to that, to people that we meet. God's angels are among us, maybe more than we realize sometimes. And they're there to, <clears throat> to help God's people and to serve God's people. So what Satan did was as an act of his free will, because they are persons. And if God had created angels such that they could only do his will and what he wanted them to do, then they would not be free. Now, one question that sometimes comes up that people will ask me, they'll say, well, wait a minute. Once we get saved, it's eternal and we can't undo our salvation. That's right, because you chose to make an eternal decision. And God, in his grace, secures you forever. Security is not found in a place. It's found in a person. And so, you know, some people down here think, well, you know, I just got to hang on tight because I don't want to lose my salvation. But someday if I can just get into heaven's door, everything will be fine. The door will be shut and locked and I'll be secure forever. Security isn't found in a place. It's found in a person. Look, a third of the angels fell from heaven. And when we're in heaven, we will be forever there. And if we've received Christ, we will be guaranteed that we'll go to heaven. And so um, th that's a great question you're asking, but I, that's a really short answer. But you might want to, it sounds like you're out of school. You're probably home educated. Maybe a lot of home educators have taken for credit here and there. Um, some of the courses added at Search the Scriptures and they're great. They don't cost anything. Um, they're taught on a college master's level, very in-depth, but you could handle it, and you would really benefit from it. Let's go to the next question. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Um, I know uh, you have mentioned before about how some Christians could disagree on certain things, but the main thing is, is we have to hold on to the non-negotiables. Uh, one of the things I uh, have been looking at lately is this, uh, I guess they call it Lordship Salvation. And uh, one of the people or pastors that they pointed out in there was, they quoted from a book from John MacArthur saying that he holds to this type of uh, view. Um, some have criticized it. They point to that that it's adding on to the gospel, 
and they're saying we're saved by grace through faith alone and not by works. I know you have mentioned the word believe. It doesn't say believe and follow or believe and et cetera. Um, it just says believe, not just, you know, head knowledge believe, but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I was wondering if you could explain lordship salvation to me, plus uh, certain churches that may hold to the where they they sort of insinuated that they feel like baptism saves, and also if someone holds to lordship salvation or baptism saves, does that mean that they're not saved, or does that mean that they fall into that category of someone who? You might disagree with them, but they hold to the non-negotiables. It's a good question. So there's really two questions here. One concerns baptism. The other concerns lordship salvation. And uh, the two are not by any stretch necessarily connected. So let me deal with the first one. Sometimes it's just an issue of terminology. And so unfortunately in evangelicalism today, Sometimes the gospel is presented in a cheap, easy way, and it's presented in an inaccurate way. Um, And so they will meet people who will say, well, I've received Jesus as my Savior. I'm going to heaven. And because eternal life is eternal and it's something that's received in this life and you can't lose something that's eternal, that as long as you've been saved, it doesn't matter how you live. Someone who thinks that way is really deceived themselves into thinking they are saved and they have a false assurance of salvation. And so sometimes in the cheapening of the gospel where we have not emphasized enough that the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in this present age. Sometimes we have not emphasized enough that if your salvation is real, then it will show itself. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And it will show itself not just in external actions, but in a lifestyle. In other words, someone can go and be very religious and jump through all the hoops and appear to be Christian on the outside, but their life is really not a life that's pleasing to the Lord. So in Matthew chapter 7, the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus exhorts people to enter by the narrow way because wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. And then he says, narrow is the way, small is the gate that leads to life and few are those who find it. The context of those verses in Matthew 7, 13, 14 is kind of interesting because he's not speaking to people who are engaged in the various isms of the world you know, Hinduism or Buddhism. He's actually speaking to people who claim to be Christians. We preached in your name. We did, uh, uh, we cast out demons in your names. We, we, we did miracles in your name. In fact, the illustration he uses, I think to underscore his point, it's not some kind of a whole hum average kind of testimony, but a spectacular testimony. If we had someone today who preached in Jesus' name and cast out demons in his name and did miracles in his name, say, oh man, it's a spirit-filled ministry. Wow. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice, practice, practice. That's the key word, iniquity. It's the key word in 1 John when he speaks of the person 
who practices sin as a lifestyle, a person that is, so to speak, who has no desire to live holy and to live a new life. So again, sometimes when you, you're talking about Lordship salvation, it's somewhat semantical. And so, yeah, John MacArthur would not by any stretch deny salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But the question is, well, must Christ be your Lord to be your savior? And then the question becomes, well, how much? How much does he have to be your Lord? And so uh, when these guys sometimes present this, uh, they will often paint themselves into a corner. I'm not saying MacArthur has, but there are people who do. They paint themselves into a corner and that they ignore that there's a progressive dimension to the Lordship of Christ. Most of the commands in the New Testament are not written to people in need of salvation, but to people who are saved to go further with Jesus. And so you read the letters of the New Testament and they're written and aimed at Christians. Uh, Certainly there are some that maybe need to question if their faith is legitimate. And so Paul will say, test yourself to see if you be of the faith. In the last chapter of 2 Corinthians, Peter will say in his second letter, make sure your election and calling is certain because there are people who have a false assurance. But if you listen carefully and you listen to the way the Lordship Salvationist presents the gospel to a child, you will find an inconsistency. Because listen, Jesus said a little child can embrace the gospel. So what do you really have to understand? You have to understand that you're a sinner, that your sin deserves the punishment death. But there is a sinless substitute who died instead of you. The Bible says Christ died for sins. Well, if Christ died for sins and he had no sin, then the only way to think of his death is in our place as our substitute. And that's how it's presented in both testaments. It's substitutionary in nature. He's pierced through for our iniquity, not for his, because he has none. And of course, that he was raised from the dead, that the resurrection is God's really proof that he was sinless and therefore able to die as your substitute. And that the benefits of those um, of his work, uh, what the Bible defines as the gospel is received by faith or by believing. So the question becomes is, is there a conviction of sin? Does a person really see himself as a sinner? If he really sees himself as a sinner, then he is going to admit that what he's engaged in is wrong and it needs to be forgiven and changed. If a person says, well, you know, I I want you to forgive me, but I don't want to change. He's really not coming to Jesus for forgiveness because there's not been a real acknowledgement of sin. Now, again, I can preach the word. Only the spirit of God can impart the word. And so we are called to use the word of God because it's the tool the spirit of God uses. It's the living word. It's like a seed that's planted in the human heart and it brings conviction. My so shall be my word that proceeds from my mouth like the rain and snow that comes out of heaven. It shall not return to me void without accomplishing the purpose for which I've sent it. So we use the word of God because we recognize it's the sword of the spirit, but the spirit of God is the one who has to bring conviction. He has to take that. And so Paul used the law, for instance, like a mirror. You know, you look into the mirror and you see your face is dirty. You look into the mirror of God's word and you see your soul is dirty. So the spirit of God must convince a person 
that they are indeed a sinner worthy of the judgment of God and that they need to flee to the cross for escape. And if they're doing that to receive forgiveness of sin, then inherent in that is a desire for God to change. You know, if you marry someone and you say, well, I want to marry you, not because I want to have a relationship with you. I just want what you can do for me. I want you to wash my clothes and clean my house and take care of my kids and feed my meal, feed me three meals a day. But I don't want to have a relationship with you. No woman in her right mind would agree to that kind of an arrangement. You can't separate what a person does from who a person is. You can't separate what Jesus did on the cross from who he is. He's Lord. And so he has a right to rule over our lives. And again, if we're coming to Jesus for forgiveness, there's a genuine recognition, but we want to be careful here not to make Lordship salvation, which I think some are guilty of doing. They make it almost a work. Like you, you clean up your act to come to God. Look, Jesus said the man who sins is a slave to sin. You can't clean up your act to come to God, but you come to God so that he can clean up your act so that he can change you. And we must never in any respect, ignore that there's a progressive dimension to sanctification, that lordship is ongoing, that there are hundreds of commands that God will give you through your whole life and new areas that he wants to change and refine and bring under his control. And there's ongoing choices that we make, but let's not muddy the gospel of grace by making lordship salvation, some kind of a work because it is not. And again, you will see an inconsistency from people in this camp because when they try to present the gospel to a seven-year-old, it's very different from the way they present the gospel to a 47-year-old. And they, they tend to make it a little more, you know, workish to the 47-year-old. Well, listen, is there a different gospel for a seven-year-old than from a 47-year-old? There is not. It's the same gospel. You might use simpler terms to communicate it to a child, but it's the same message. All right, that's one question. The second question you ask are those groups or denominations that teach baptism saves. That is heresy. That, that has nothing to do with the Lordship salvation decision. That's adding to the gospel. So typically, the Christian church denomination does this. Uh, There are exceptions to the rule, and sometimes they want to hide behind it because people are challenging them on it. But typically, if you go to a church's website and they mention baptism and they quote Acts 2.38 or Romans 6, not always, but typically, or John 3, then they are teaching salvation uh, is partly obtained through baptism. And that's a heresy. It's, It's the Galatian error that Paul deals with, with the church at Galatia, where people have added something to the gospel. And there they just added one thing, like some people add baptism, they added circumcision. And Paul made it very clear. He said, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach you a gospel contrary to which we have preached to you, he is to be a curse. And we've said again, we, we say it again, as we've said it before, if any man, anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that, which you have received, he is to be accursed. And so they added something to the gospel. They, they didn't deny that Jesus died, was buried and was raised. They taught that, but they said, in addition, you need to be circumcised. And so Paul goes on, he says, we are Jews by nature in the second chapter, the 15th verse 
and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, you know, we understand that a man is not justified, declared righteous, saved by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. Even we as Jews who have been circumcised, we've put our faith, our belief in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified, saved, not by anything we've done, but by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And then he'll say at the end of chapter two, I do not nullify the grace of God. I don't make God's grace meaningless. I don't void it out by adding something to it as they did. And again, they weren't adding 50 works, but one work for if righteousness, which is what you need to have a relationship with God to get into his perfect heaven. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. There was no need for him to die. Uh, but he didn't die a partial death. He died a complete death that fully paid for our sin. So if you see a church, you know, I tell people they leave here and I went to such and such a church. I said, mm. I said, I bet they teach baptismal regeneration. Oh, how, how would I know? Go to the doctrinal statement. They'll click it online. I said, go to baptism, go to baptism. Do they have Acts 2.38, John 3, Romans 6? Yes, they do. They're teaching baptismal regeneration. I said, they're teaching a different gospel. And there are churches like that in our own community. And um, they, they teach that baptism is necessary to be saved. It's not. It's, it's an act of obedience, but it is not necessary to be saved. It is something we do after we're saved. But they take a verse like this out of context. Peter said, repent, let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, that sounds like, you know, it's something I need to... Uh, to do to be saved, be baptized for in order to be forgiven. Um, it doesn't, the word for here doesn't mean in order to, it means because of, uh, I give you a medal for your bravery, not in order to be brave, but because you are brave. And Peter asked them to be baptized, not in order to be forgiven, but because they are, it's our emblem. It's really our, the confession of faith. So while it is a symbol, it is an act of obedience, but anyone, who tells you it washes away sin or is necessary to salvation. They are preaching a different gospel. They've muddied the grace of God and they are coming under the court curse of Galatians chapter one. All right. Very good. We've got another live caller. Let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, good morning. I have a probably a simple question. Uh, I hear the term Coptic Christian, usually Egyptian Coptic Christians being persecuted. And I, I don't know what the word Coptic is, and I, I haven't been able to find it. I don't know what that means, a Coptic Christian. Another question, when Paul when Paul left Damascus and went to Arabia, so then he came back to Arabia, or back to Damascus for three years, I wonder how long he was in Arabia. He's in Arabia. just a yeah. total of three years before he went from there to Jerusalem. No, good, good question. Uh, the New American Standard is very precise, and so when you read the account there, He's in Arabia for three years, and it's kind of interesting because if you ponder it, Christ's public ministry with his apostles were three years. And so Jesus uh, didn't choose Paul, of course, until uh, the Damascus Road experience, but they get the same seminary experience. He gets the same seminary experience, so to speak, that, that, that they get. And so uh, actually he has an advantage because he's regenerated by the spirit of God. When he gets it, the disciples are not because the new covenant had not yet been implemented. Uh, the new covenant begins in its implementation on the day of Pentecost. And that's the blessing of the new covenant 
that the Holy Spirit would live within us. And so even at the end of a three-year seminary tour with Jesus, they're asking who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, and they're arguing over it in the upper room on the night before Jesus is crucified. And of course, it's in that context he gets down and washes their feet. So when Paul gets his seminary training with the Lord, uh, he is doing it out of a regenerated heart. So he has, in one sense, an advantage. But lay all that aside. Um, uh, it's a three-year experience in the desert. Then he comes out. Uh, Coptic Christians, uh, it, they uh, would fall under, um, some would put them under the Orthodox Church, but technically they're not. So Coptics are, uh, are found, you know, in different parts of the world. When I was in Bethlehem on our last tour to Israel, the guide who uh, gave us a tour was actually a Coptic believer. And so are Coptic Christians born again? Well, are Baptists born again? Are Presbyterians born again? Are Methodists born again? Just depends. Uh, actually, the tour guide that we had was not a born again Christian. Now, he thought he was a Christian because he was a good Coptic, uh, but unfortunately, he was not born again. He had kind of a works mentality. And there's a lot of people like that across America who identify outwardly with Christianity, but they have not inwardly had the second birth. And sometimes because they don't know what the gospel is. So there was a guy living in Bethlehem doing all these tours. And I wondered how many people had witnessed to him or they just assumed, but I asked him the diagnostic questions and he was not sure. What do you think you'd have to do to be sure? Well, be a better Christian, try harder. You know, he was lost. And so I was able to share with him a little bit, the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Uh, in different parts of the world, the Coptic church is stronger with the gospel, just like a Baptist churches, say in the South, tend to be more faithful with the gospel than say a Baptist church in the North, where most of the Baptist churches there have a form of righteousness. They've denied its power and some of them are extremely liberal. As it turns out, we've seen more recently the Coptic church in Egypt being persecuted and they are being persecuted and killed and slaughtered and houses burned and everything else. And in other parts of the world too, you know, I communicate with a, a pastor on a regular base in Pakistan and he uh, has just been telling me about all the heartache they've been going through and Children, teenage girls kidnapped and raped and their homes burnt to the ground. Um, I communicate on a regular basis with a pastor who's in New Delhi and they have to have police protection every week at their church when they gather because uh, they are being persecuted and a Christian church not far from where his church is physically located was burned to the ground about last year at this time. So there are Christians in Egypt and the Coptics for the most part in Egypt have the gospel. They're real genuine born again believers and they have been persecuted. Um, today, most Coptics fall under the branch of the Orthodox church. And so around a thousand AD, uh, the church split into the Western and the Eastern uh, segments. And it was over a couple of theological issues and, uh, nothing that dramatic. I mean, just secondary issues. And I have messages on this, but um, unfortunately today, a lot of people in the Orthodox church 
and there's Russian Orthodox, and there's Greek Orthodox, and there's Ukrainian Orthodox, and on it goes, Armenian Orthodox. Uh, unfortunately, today, they're a lot like Catholics in that they would tell you we affirm the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity, and we uh, believe that Jesus died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, raised from the dead. And so they have a lot of Orthodox beliefs mixed in with uh error. And so in that sense, they're guilty of um, less than faithful orthodoxy. And a lot of Coptics, unfortunately, fall into that realm today. Uh, When we go to Bethlehem uh, in our next trip to Israel in May of 2018, we're actually going to go to an evangelical uh, Baptist church. And you talk about some people who are really experiencing a hard time, you know, to think about the birthplace of the Messiah. And the Christians have been virtually run out of Bethlehem now. And it's very, very challenging to be a believer. They're not physically killing them, but what they are doing is they're basically boycotting them. And so if you live uh, in Bethlehem and you own a business, you're being boycotted. So one of the things that we try to do when we bring tour groups into Bethlehem is to Uh, go to some of the Christian businesses so that they are blessed and they have some income to survive. Uh, But we're going to go to a um, a born again pastor uh, and actually uh, be uh, involved and come to his church and encourage him. And I hope he'll encourage us as well. Great question. 843-525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980. If you have a question on today's Bible line and getting back to that Question from Brandon, who's uh, getting ready to leave Fort Sam Houston, Texas, and is concerned about, well, whether it's uh, right for him to maybe enter the pastorate because uh, he was divorced before he got saved. Uh, He says they were married for five years. He divorced uh, as an unsaved man. Now his current wife and he are both content and committed Christians. Christ is the center of their family. As he prayerfully seeks a vision and mission for family ministry, Uh, He can't move beyond the various leadership qualifications listed in 1 Timothy. Now, his pastor informs him that he indeed uh, qualifies to go into full-time chaplaincy. However, uh, he doesn't have peace in his spirit about it and wants to know, am I disqualified from chaplaincy? And what other roles may I aspire to, given his previous marriage? Well, I appreciate him wanting one to obey the scripture and to be faithful to God's word. And so when God looks for the qualifications of an elder, he must be literally the husband of one wife. The Greek says a one woman man. And so God's not down on divorced people, but he's up on marriage and he wants to protect the home. And he recognizes that if we take a very sloppy view of marriage, especially when it comes to leadership in the church, instead of protecting marriages, we tear them down. Certainly, there's some people who will listen to me and say, well, that all happened before he was saved. Not at God's forgiven. Well, he has forgiven him. We're not talking about an issue of forgiveness here. We're, we're talking about an issue in terms of who's qualified to serve as a pastor. And certainly none of us as pastors are perfect people, but we are to be progressing people. Our progress should be evident to all. Paul will tell young Timothy. But with that said, that doesn't mean that you can't serve in other capacities. And so now you may not have a peace in your heart in reference to the chaplaincy because God wants you to serve in some other capacity. But the chaplains in the military are not pastors. 
and you would be able to um, fit in that bid if that if that that billet if that's something that you wanted to do uh, but it might be that God wants you to do something else and there's scores and scores and scores of full-time Christian positions that a divorced man who may not be able to serve in the office of elder can play in there are missionary positions around the world that need to be fi- filled there are positions on church staff uh, that need to be fulfilled and you could certainly serve as a chaplain because again, they're, they're not pastoring a local church. Uh, you are going to, you know, have opportunities to share your faith. I, I think one of the challenges to Brandon from Houston, Texas, that you're going to have to question is if you prepare to go into the chaplaincy and you start walking down that road and then you find out that some of the things that you hope to do are going to be prevented, then you, you may be disappointed. And so I think there are people in the military who want to dramatically change the role of chaplaincy. You know, I mean, you've got chaplains who were, you know, being questioned for praying in Jesus's name, and all kinds of nonsense and freedoms that are ours as Americans. But, you know, everybody wants to be politically correct and, all this nonsense. And so I'm afraid that at some point they might make the chaplaincy uh, a basically obsolete and they won't have quote unquote chaplains. They'll have counselors. And that's really what they want for the most part is counselors. Now you go on some bases and I remember years ago on Paris Island, there were 12 chaplains. And on that given year, there were two born again chaplains and the rest were lost men. And it was, uh, it was sad, but those two born again guys had a tremendous opportunity Uh, right now. The majority, if not all of the chaplains on Paris Island are born again Christians. So things can really change. And there is a need for born again believers to serve amongst our military. And very often there's opportunities there that aren't found in other places. You know, during Desert Storm and things like that, there were chances where, you know, young men were facing, you know, military combat. And it resulted in really hundreds, if not thousands of conversions of men in the various armed services that came to Christ. Just the fear of death uh, woke some of their hearts and they gave their life to the Lord. So there's opportunities for people who are serving you know, in the chaplaincy to present the gospel and to have an impact and to disciple men and women. So it's a noble thing and you certainly wouldn't be disqualified, but if you don't have a real peace, it might be that it's not over the issue of whether or not you uh, are qualified to serve in that position, but maybe God wants you to do something else. And so take the next step. You know, you take one step at a time. When you drive down the road at night and you have your headlights on, you don't need to see a mile down the road. All you need to do is see 300 yards in front of you. And that will get you to the next 300 yards and the next 300 yards. So you take the next step. So if you're thinking of full-time ministry, well, start preparing. Uh, Enroll yourself in some seminary program. And right now, it's really pretty amazing. You You can get now master level degrees online from reputable uh, seminaries. You couldn't do that some years ago, but now that's available. And take that step, take the next step. And it's very often as you're moving that God's going to direct you. 
it's far easier to move a, to steer a moving object than the one that is stationary. And God may lead you to be a missionary somewhere or serve on some support uh, position in a church staff. I mean, there's just endless opportunities for the man or the woman who wants to serve God. 843-525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980. If you have a question on today's Bible line and a caller dictated their question, they'd like to know when Genesis recounts that God confounded the language of the people at the Tower of Babel, does that mean he actually gave different people different languages? If so, how do those who don't believe Genesis is an actual factual account of what happened explain the change of language for different people and, na- and nations? It's a good question. Um, we as believers have a real reason to explain the various racial differences found in the world today. The word Babel is really a transliteration of the Hebrew text, and it means confusion. And so when man in his pride wanted to build a ziggurat or some kind of a tower up into the heavens to really exalt himself, uh, the scripture tells us in Genesis 11, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east and they found plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad the whole earth. And so God looks at what they're doing and he says, behold, they are one people. They have all the same language. This is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose will be impossible for them. So let us, not let me, because the Bible affirms the triunity of God, uh, go down and confuse the language. And he did. And so what ends up happening is that, you know, if you can only speak French, you're probably going to hang around with French people and you marry within your language group. And when you do that long enough, you begin to take on particular DNA expressions and various racial features. Now, the evolutionist explains that through, um, you know, a, a process of natural selection. And Hitler uses to say that black people and Jewish people were part of an inferior race and they needed to be destroyed. Uh, the evolutionist has that perspective. Margaret Sanger the founder of Planned Parenthood, based on her evolutionary beliefs, said that black people were inferior. You know, why any African-American person would get behind Planned Parenthood is beyond me because they are an inherently evil racial group at their inception. So we have a reason why we have the various races, and it's not evolutionary. It's by divine intervention. And someday, uh, well... We're out of time. We'll have to pick it up on another day. Uh, Thanks for joining us this hour for Search the Scriptures. You can follow us online on Twitter, and uh, this broadcast will be posted before day's end. Have a great day as you walk with Christ. 